There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Essential School Sucks. This is the final episode in our second section, Leaving Institutional Schooling and Finding Educational Alternatives. This one is called Don't Be Anyone's Useful Idiot, Advice for Young People in the 2020s. And it is again with Zach Slayback, back to back Zach Slayback. In the previous show, you heard my very first podcast with Zach. This was my last. We recorded it a week after the January 6th incident in 2021. My story at the time, at the end of 2020, I, after being in New Hampshire most of 2020, had come back to Western Pennsylvania and was considering resettling in Pittsburgh, which I have now done. But back when Zach and I recorded this, I really wasn't sure what the immediate future held in that period of time between the Capitol riot and the inauguration. In my circles anyway, there was all kinds of talk about an unprecedented level of broad-based crackdown on all forms of dissent, and maybe there would be some subsequent social unrest. So I said to the people close to me, let's have some non-perishable food on hand, let's get some cash out of the bank, and let's clean those guns, so to speak. We didn't know what was gonna happen. And that was the mindset that I was in when I hit record with Zach that day. The whole January 6th thing is in the news right now. How much people care about it, that's certainly questionable. What the outcome is going to be as far as conflict or future social unrest, that's debatable. So it was a tense time. You're probably old enough to remember this. The days and weeks after January 6th, 2021. And since our first conversation in 2016, Zach Slayback had always been my go-to guy on career advice for young people. So even though this conversation is broad in scope, the purpose of this show was for Zach, a man who certainly has his ear to the street socially, politically, and certainly in things like tech and business trends and career trends, I wanted him to give the most up-to-date advice for young people in a time of uncertainty and instability. And we are still very much in that time. But the thread that I wanted to make sure ran through this conversation was how do young people let go of a permission mindset? We've spent the last 10 episodes focused on leaving institutional schooling and finding educational alternatives. That pursuit is about setting young people up for success. 
how to get ahead, how to get an edge, how to stand out from the crowd, how to not do what everybody else is doing. So this conversation is a really good finisher for this second section of The Essential School Sucks. If you are a young person or you're the parent of a young person, how do you plan for the future at a time like this when it comes to career? How do you have more autonomy in how you make money? How do you become anti-fragile? All of that will be discussed in the show today, along with an opportunity for you to stroll down memory lane and feel what the world was like in January of 2021 in the aftermath of the Capitol riot. I look forward to you experiencing how right we were about so many things. Not everything, but in several ways, yeah, we nailed it. If you appreciate this, if you are getting value out of the Essential School Sucks, please consider supporting the School Sucks Project. There are links in the show notes. The easiest way to do it is become a patron at patreon.com slash school sucks. We have three tiers of membership. All include attractive benefits. At the top tier, you can join our university community on a monthly basis. You can meet with us a couple of times a week. You can discuss current events. You can discuss what you hear in these episodes. All topics are on the table for these discussions. In the previous show, you'll remember Zach was working for Praxis, which is our partner for the Essential School Sucks. You can learn more about Praxis in the show notes. But in this conversation you're about to hear, Zach has been away from Praxis for years. He moved on to new opportunities, but you can go to ZachSlayback.com to find out what he's currently up to. And if you enjoy Zach, he is a presenter in our Ideas Into Action Summit, a digital knowledge product I put together several years ago, three years ago. It has only become more relevant, and it is a conversational course on how to learn new information, how to organize that information, and how to present that information to be as persuasive as possible. Zach's presentation was called Set Yourself Up for Success with Any New Learning Pursuit. He was one of four presenters in the first section of Ideas into Action. It was called How to Organize Your Thoughts More Effectively. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. You can use the coupon code INDEPENDENCE from now until July 5th to get 30% off the entire product, which comes with a lifetime membership in our private community. Okay. This is The Essential School Sucks number 20, originally released on January 16th, 2021 as podcast 696, Plan B with Zach Slayback. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Social media in a certain sense is like its own school writ large, right? It's like oh, the, oh, that's exactly what I've been saying. Yeah. All the toxicity of school all in one place, just global and constantly at your fingertips and driven directly into your eyeballs. But there's this, this element to school, and I think to the extent in social media, it's the timeline of presentism, that we are in the present, the present is the only thing that has ever existed, and the present is the only thing that ever will exist. And Gatto talks about this to the extent that we lock children in schools uh, where they're separate from adults, so adults never, adults never have to think about the future. Children never have to think about the future or the past either because they're with everyone who's in their own age group. And then a great example of this past year is too, is we lock the elderly away. So we don't have to think about the past. We don't have to think about the past and we don't have to think about the future. Now is the only thing that has ever existed. Now is the only thing that ever will exist, right? Mm -hmm. And that's so, so scary uh, when you get into these like historical moments, right? There's a tweet going around that was something like, somewhere right now there is an English literature professor drafting a tweet, and this was during the, the capital stuff that was going on, drafting a tweet that this is the 
to- most unprecedented thing that has ever happened in American <laughs> history. Right, yeah. It's like, if we have any grasp of history, we know that that's not true. All the stories have been told of kings in days of old, but there's no England now. All the wars that were won and lost somehow don't seem to matter very much anymore. All the lies we were told, all the lives of the people running round their castles are burned. I see change, but inside we're the same as we ever were. Hey there, welcome back to School Sucks. This is Brett. Today is Saturday, January 16th. A couple of days ago, I was driving through, of all places, the city of Pittsburgh. I was on the north side, near my old neighborhood, and I said, oh my goodness, this is the city where Zach Slayback lives. Favorite neighbor of the School Sucks podcast, Zach Slayback. I said, I got to get in touch with that guy. So then I did, and then I recorded it, and you are just moments away from hearing that. So Zach and I had actually talked just a little bit back and forth before this conversation. I was really interested in getting his perspective on everything that's happening right now. So we're going to start real big picture. But the purpose of the conversation was to provide an update on some of Zach's previous advice for young professionals. I mean, this really goes all the way down to kids who are still in high school, hopefully, but also in college or just starting their careers. And we put out a show a couple of years ago called How High School Students Can Get Ahead in Their Careers. And I mentioned it's a priority here at School Sucks Project to produce content that is timeless. But sometimes even seemingly timeless content needs updating in the face of an inevitable hellstorm of unknown proportions and unknown duration. And that being said, I figured this was the perfect time for this show. Zach will probably be back soon for another project that you're going to hear us talk about towards the end of this conversation. I really appreciated his perspective, his input, his advice. I hope you get a lot out of it as well. I think you will. We also just recorded a new episode of The Discomfort Zone that should be along at the beginning of next week and some big announcements coming too. So make sure with all the other things that you have to do right now, try to check in here as well. I'd appreciate that. All right. I hope you're having a great weekend. Thank you for listening. Take care. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back, Brett. Are you still in Pittsburgh? I, I am still in Pittsburgh. How is that? <laughs> Let me put it to you this way. Before the pandemic, oh there were, uh, on average, 140,000 people that go per day to downtown Pittsburgh. Today, there's about 10,000 people per day. Mm-hmm. So downtown Pittsburgh is a ghost town. It is uh, not a city that's built for any kind of outdoor dining. So service industry has been absolutely decimated. It's a city that also is primarily built on events and the sports industry that has also been completely destroyed. It's not, not going well. Um, I've been telling a few friends, you know, I was, I was on clubhouse the other day and in, in a room with a couple other people. And somebody asked my opinion on like the big macro vision for the next couple of years. And I was like, I don't know why somebody wants my opinion on this, but I guess it's because 
I'm, I'm an investor and people think that my opinion on those kinds of things is important. But I told them, I think what we're going to see over the next couple of years is this kind of like bifurcation of reality, right? Already underway. Yeah. Yeah, no, very much underway. <laughs> the example I gave them is there's a book by the sci-fi author, Neil Stevenson, called Fall or Dodge in Hell. Uh, and the book's not very good, personally. Like, I, it's it's too fantasy LARPing, and I'm, I'm not a fan of that that kind of genre. Uh, but there's a novella kind of in the middle about this this plot line where Moab, Utah is destroyed by a tactical nuke, and the country splits between a group of people who believe that it was destroyed and a group of people who believe that it wasn't destroyed. And in reality, it actually wasn't destroyed. It was all a plot to try to discredit social media. <laughs> uh, so it was this big, big plot that reported the city was destroyed, hired actors to get off planes at LAX saying that they saw a mushroom cloud in the middle of the night, uh, a DDoS attack to uh, deny uh, any incoming or outcoming communications with the city of Moab. And it's supposed to be this point about how horrible social media is, mm -hmm. right? But it actually ends up destroying the country. <laughs> Yeah. 30, 40 years in the future, you'll see in certain parts of the country, these bumper stickers that say, remember Moab, right? Mm -hmm. And and I kind of think that that's the direction we're, we're moving in. I didn't think that when, when Stevenson released this book like two and a half, three years ago, that it happened so quickly. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think you're seeing a, a, the bifurcation, particularly along quasi-geographic lines. I, 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 had a, I flew up to Boston recently, which was also not very good as far as uh, everything life-wise was going. And I just kind of shot off this tweet that was, you know, the year is 2035. The state of Texas has a population of 100 million people. There are no small businesses anywhere north of North Carolina. The Miami area has a GDP greater than that of the entire European Union combined. And again, it's a tongue-in-cheek joke, but I think that that's a very possible kind of reality that we're barreling towards. Well, you know, when I mentioned the city of Pittsburgh, you didn't launch into the speech that I love, Jewel of the Rust Belt, all of that. So I, I could tell maybe you were feeling a little more cynical than usual. You're going to love this. Do you know where I am right now? Uh, I've seen that you were in Florida at one point. I'm in uh, Butler. I am Butler. in the gem of the Rust Belt. You're in Butler? I'm in Butler. So we're going to have to hang out because I'm going to be okay. here. I'm definitely waiting to see what happens next week. Uh, before I think about going anywhere else, Butler seems like a really safe place. But yeah. uh, last like in-depth, in-person conversation we had, it was the end of May. You came to my house. Uh, we sat on my porch. Uh, we walked through our neighborhood, and we talked about what we thought might happen next. And then we parted ways, and things happened next. You know, yeah. like I think the very next day, all of that civil unrest began in Pittsburgh and around the country. It was the day that I traveled back to New Hampshire. In addition to looking out at, I guess that's like six plus months at this point, you know, I'm trying to make the best I can, uh, and it needs to be updated sometimes, evergreen content. Uh, and I've really appreciated your contributions uh, for, you know, advice for young professionals, starting careers. Now, I was looking at a couple of shows that we did, uh, one back in 2018, how high school students can get ahead in their careers. But so many things like college and career just in the last 10 months yeah. have undergone such dramatic transformations that I thought it would be good today to have a conversation, maybe updating some of your advice. I'm sure some of it is still relevant. I'm sure some of it might even be more relevant since you were you know, future-focused in ways that 
most people giving young people advice were not uh, two years ago. That would be the the focus of our conversation. But I would also like to back further out and go as wide as you want. Next week is going to be a big week in this country, and a lot of things are probably going to change. So I just kind of wanted to get your big picture take on everything, too. You know, there's there's these kind of like subset of memes, right? Like there's 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 this idea of like a core meme on the internet, and then every meme kind of has its own offshoots. Yeah. Good good example is is the Wojak memes. There's like you now five thousand variations on the Wojak meme or the the Chad versus Virgin meme, right? What is the Wojak? Just in case anybody doesn't know. Uh, kind of like the the white black and white cartoon guy uh, with all the different faces. You you see him pop up all over the internet in different capacities. Uh, so a derivative of the Wojak meme is the the NPC meme. Sure. Okay. Yep. So there there's a set of memes on um, uh, around the, the concept of the political compass, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, right? The idea that you can be authoritarian right, authoritarian left, libertarian right, libertarian left. There's there's a derivative meme that in the center for the centrist is just this kind of like Microsoft Word clip art guy grilling. And it just says, I just want to grill. And a few weeks ago, when everything was going on at the U.S. Capitol, I was, I was in New Hampshire. I was skiing with some family. I totally forgot that anything was even happening that day. Mm. And I, I check my phone at one point when I'm on uh, one of the ski lifts, and it turns out like the world is melting down according to you know the the reality distortion field that is Twitter, right? Yeah. Yep. And I just thought to myself, you know, I just want to ski. That's it. We we don't even have to know that these things are going on for most of us. And so much of our ability to react to the world comes down to like what reality distortion field we're trying to see it through. So that's just my big preface. But yeah, I'm I'm happy to dig into any of this stuff with you. Let me tell you this story. Okay. So that day that that happened, that was when I just got here, right, to Butler. And for the first time since like March 10th or 11th, I'm in a gym or one of the first times I'm in a gym working out. And this is just absolutely wonderful. All this stuff is going on. And I see people like go up to the TV. This this happened a couple of times, but there was this one dude. He goes up to the TV. He looks at whatever it was, probably Fox, but maybe CNN. And he stares at it for like 15, 20 seconds. He laughs. And then he goes up and he talks to a friend. And he's like, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? And I was like, now that's an act of rebellion that I like. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yeah. I wish more people had been doing it over the last 20 years, you know, like yeah. having that orientation towards all of this stuff. Um, but that made me feel like, okay, this is a good place to be right now. Unfortunately, I have an opportunity where I can be here for a little bit. So I'm going to take advantage of it until I see what happens. You know, there's this concept that's typically attributed to Lenin, Vladimir, not, not John, uh, that, that of the useful idiot, right? Oh yeah. Let's get into this. Yeah. And one of my only rules as I've gotten older, um, I I've, I've, develop fewer and fewer rules for politics and current events, like fewer and fewer, I would say beliefs, solid beliefs Mm -hmm. and more rules like heuristics. And my biggest rule is try not to be anybody's useful idiot. Yes. And that's really, really hard nowadays, especially if you're online. Um, You know, if you think about what something like Twitter is to the extent that it's, it's, this and it is something that an intelligence community thirty years ago could only dream of, 
mm-hmm. it gives it gives any anybody with sufficient you know manpower the ability to essentially fly c-130s over an area and drop leaflets of saying whatever you whatever you want to the population to believe oh yeah i mean you look at all the work that people do with data collection like all these third parties that are involved in facebook twitter and instagram i'm sure you're familiar with the age of surveillance capitalism book at least but you know hearing uh, alexander nix uh from cambridge analytica say look if we need to go down uh, as granularly to the individual level, we have 4,000 data. Whether he's telling the truth or not, I don't know, but it's somewhere in the ballpark. We have three or 4,000 data points on every adult. So that's the work that they're doing. But you, yeah, I mean, you look at the work that people are doing for them just by like, yep. these are my fears, these are my alliances, these are my hopes. It's almost like, yeah, creating uh, marketing, but also personality, psychographic profiles of themselves. Yep, yep. exactly. Yeah, and again, something that... Any sort of um, whether you want to call it an intelligence community or anybody who has any vested interest in controlling a narrative could only dream of. Right? Could only dream of. Whether it's instead, I, I wasn't even necessarily referring to the data collection. I was just referring to the ability to blast a narrative. Because prior to the internet, and maybe, and I, this still does happen today in regions that are uh, less connected, when an inv- when an occupying force would prepare for an invasion. They would fly a plane over a region and and drop pamphlets or, or flyers from the plane to tell the the civilian population there whatever they wanted the civilian population to believe. Sometimes it would be you know like leave right. There are examples of this during World War II where it's like we're coming through. We encourage you to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, but often it would be actual propaganda. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. And, and the, the extent to which we've just kind of like welcomed this into our day to day lives is absolutely astonishing to me. Absolutely astonishing. You familiar with Yuri Bizmenov? I'm not, no. He's a KGB defector. He worked on some disinformation campaign or subversion campaign primarily in India for the Soviet Union, like in the late 60s and throughout the 70s. And then he defected from the Soviet Union. He came here in the 70s or 80s. He sits down for an interview with G. Edward Griffin in 1984. He goes, oh, yeah, we're done. Our projects here, like, we're, we're not spending money on spying. Those are not the majority of our resources. Our project is subversion, and we've been working on that in the United States for 20 years, and we're finished. We're ready to move on to the next step. We've effectively installed a Marxist ideology into your young people here in 1984. Now, he lays out kind of a blueprint because, um, you know, it was just a year and a half ago that so many people in my various news feeds were in love with Russia conspiracies. Um, obviously, the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. They never got to cash in on the subversion campaigns that they had run here, mainly through media and academia. And that's all known. I mean, you know, people were onto that in the 50s. That was happening. It was happening before that. It was happening before HUAC. It was happening before McCarthyism. But what the Soviets left was a blueprint that any company or any or a country, excuse me, or even like a non-governmental organization could pick up. You demoralize a population. This you know might take a couple of decades, whatever it takes to educate one generation. You destabilize that population. You introduce a crisis, and then you bring about some condition of normalization. So. Even if you just take the 20th century so far, we're 20 years into it at this point. 21st uh, century. 21st century. The demoralization, really through the rise of social media, 
this idea that you can't even know what truth is, it's, it's almost pointless. It, it almost promotes a kind of nihilism where everything is just a wash at this point. You begin destabilization in 2015. I'm not even saying this was an organized plan, but I'm saying there's certainly – it certainly seems like one when you look back at the first 20 years. So you have this long demoralization through you know the wash, the nihilism, truth doesn't exist, don't even try to figure things out. Destabilization basically begins with Trump and escalates. Then we have a crisis. And now I would say we're at least in one period of normalization, even though I think there's about to be a new crisis escalation starting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's started, but it yeah. escalates again next week. I, I think that's that's essentially right. Um, and, you know, there's this old um, Gatto idea. I can't remember what the ex- exact quotation is. Maybe, you know, uh, where I think it's in the underground history uh, where he says, you know, this is all he's talking about, of course, compulsory state schooling. He says, you know, this all sounds like a conspiracy, and I kind of wish it were, because if it were a conspiracy, you could, like, chop off a head at the top of the conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality is, unfortunately, it's not. It's actually not a conspiracy, which makes it all the worse, because there isn't, like, one force behind it. Yeah, another way that he frames it, there's actually a video of this on my uh, YouTube channel. It's called Public School of Conspiracy Against Ourselves. Where he's like, you know, this this is just something that started with some design, that started with some organization, and it's something at this point that is so distributed that we're all participating in it. Yep. We're all just with our compliance, we're participating in it. Social media is a great example of that. And surveillance, surveillance, capitalism, whatever you want to call it. I try my best to program myself to approach it. In the way that the guy in your gym approaches it, mm-hmm. right? Just laugh at it. Yeah, you know that's that's the best that's the best you can do. Stay on top of it to the extent that it's important to stay on top of it. You know, I was discussing this with a friend the other day. Uh, I'm I'm going to I'm I'm going to and already am working on Plan Bs because I want to have a Plan B, uh, but I'm not going to obsess about the Plan B in the same sense I don't obsess about my car insurance deductible. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have my car insurance and I make sure it's a good enough plan that it covers. Anything that I think I might need covered, even if that's a, a like a fat tail event, but I'm not going to obsess over my car insurance. Right. I'm just going to make sure I have it. Would you be willing to discuss what your deliberation has been about Plan B's? I, I'm happy to discuss it in the thirty thousand foot level. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have I, I don't have enough details on any of these things to be considered anything close to an expert. Right. Sure. Because I think that just kind of leads us into another question I wanted to ask in this like zoomed out phase here of like what you think is coming, but talking about your plan B's would be a way of doing that. Well, I mean, something that we've seen over the last couple of years in general is the the reality that in the United States, at least we live under two constitutions. We live under the governmental constitution. We live under the terms of service of the major corporations. Yeah. And these terms of services, you know, they can be changed at any time. Uh, They can be enforced arbitrarily. Uh, and at least how the United States, how a lot of law has developed in the United States since uh, the Brandenburg decision in particular, it, there really isn't anything that can be done if these terms of services are changed or enforced arbitrarily, right? Like AWS can kick you off something if they want to, uh, just if they say they want to, mm-hmm. right? And then the, they'll say like, well, we asked you to enforce your own terms of service, and we decided that you are not enforcing your own terms of service oh, yeah. properly, right? Like that's the example that you saw at um, Parler as an example, and I'm not particularly personally sympathetic to any of these like alt social media um, approaches. I think they're all kind of the wrong approach to have to do on these things, but I think it's just a good example, right? Uh, similarly, we've seen 
we've talked on this podcast before about the importance of having your own email newsletter, right? My friend, Sean Blanda calls this owning your platform, right? Yeah. You have to own your platform because if you get deleted off of whatever platform at any time, you're pretty much SOL. Yeah, don't operate on rented land. Don't operate on rented land. Exactly. But even then, even if you have your own email list, you're still pretty much in this place that the email provider can boot you off, right? We've seen MailChimp has done this. Um, I would not be surprised if other companies have done this. So you at least have to have a backup of an actual... You're going to want an Excel file. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Your computer. That all being said, you know, you want to be in a place where it's like, okay, what happens if for whatever reason, totally arbitrary reason, even if you're somebody who's not engaging in insurrections or whatever, right? And that's the way I'm framing this. Is I, I personally have no desire to go and like storm the US Capitol building. Like that seems stupid to me. Well, and yeah, I mean, to your point about being a useful idiot, it's like right. even when you post something online, you know, the question that I wish more people I'm connected to would say, what narrative am I feeding into? And how much narrative fallacy is there in what I'm doing or what I'm thinking? And those questions just aren't asked enough. Right, exactly. So you don't want to be a useful idiot for anybody, right? But the reality is a lot of people, unfortunately, when we look historically on on the off chance that whatever political entity you're living under does go down a rather more authoritarian track, a lot of people are caught up in the crossfire for these things, you know, whether they are actually sympathetic to what's going on or not, right? In in those cases, you don't want to be in a case, you want to be you don't want to be in a position where you don't have like any emergency savings, right? I'm not telling everyone yeah. what you should probably do is have your entire net worth in Bitcoin, but you want to have some kind of backup savings account in case you need to do something and you can't access your bank account because for whatever reason, Chase decided that they're going to freeze all bank accounts with anybody who ever had a Parler account, regardless of whether or not they actually engaged in anything on Parler, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's essentially what I'm saying, right? So in that case, you know, you want to think about, okay, do I have a buffer pad in case anything bad really happens financially, right? That I can access relatively easily. Ideal scenario is that you have, ideal scenario is probably you have something like gold coins on you at any given time, uh, but that's fairly difficult to do and not particularly useful if you are transacting online. Next ideal scenario is probably you own your own keys to a wall, a crypto wallet that is untraceable. So that probably means Zcash or Monero, mm-hmm. right? Um, then you also want to make sure you have some way of making money, which ideally means you're probably not in the employ of somebody who's particularly uh, uh, likely to, you know, kowtow to whatever given point is going on. Well, the writing was on the wall for this. I mean, I'm sure you've heard these stories too, but in um, the University group, we built a Discord around that summit that we did. And I talk to those people every week. I'd love to invite you to to join us sometime. We meet sure. at this point. We meet every Sunday for a couple hours. For a while, we were doing it three times a week. Um, I, a couple of people told me stories like, "My company is saying that we have to read White Fragility." Right. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely understood when you're talking about corporate terms of service. These are far more effective levers. And now we're seeing them as choke points uh, for freedom. And, you know, people who are like liberty minded have had by and large nothing to say about this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because because it's happening on on, on like, you know, uh, private ground. Right. Like I've seen people in the employ of the of the Cato Institute, like happily defending what's going on. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, are you interested in being ideological? Or are you actually interested in the various theaters of freedom? 
Right. Well, they're they're interested at risk of sounding like a cynic. They're interested in in not making their donors upset. Like that that's that's the Who's reality they? of they, they hear is oh meaning like the large official voices like like the people who are in the employee of the Cato Institute. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Like most of these people, their their main job is to just not make their donors too upset. Mm-hmm. But I think it is also people like to see the world in a black and white fashion, and that's that's a typical kind of like divide and conquer kind of move, right? Mm-hmm. Like going back to the Remember Moab example, uh, in the the future dystopian United States, like people are in these two very black and white camps about what happened to Moab, Utah, right? Stevenson's, you know, coming at it from probably a left to center perspective, so it's a little obnoxious at times. Uh, but the reality is like it was much more something gray than it was, you know, black or white. And I, I think that's probably how the reality distortion is going to continue for the next couple of years. So my advice for people is just, you know, I had a, a private newsletter on this over the summer when a lot of the original riots were starting. Try to make yourself uncancelable as much as possible, mm-hmm. right? And what that means is, well, what that means is, first of all, don't be a useful idiot for anybody. Like, don't make it, don't make yourself, don't get canceled for stupid reasons. <laughs> don't, uh, yeah. And at this point, maybe some of us who have stuck our necks out, which I guess, you know, applies to both you and me uh, in certain ways, right? Things we've said, like the public trace. I mean, mm-hmm. mine is much longer. And I, I can guarantee you this podcast, as soon as you put it up, it is being transcripted and it is going to be uh, the it is going to be flagged most likely by Apple, by Google and by whoever is uh, distributing these podcasts. Uh, there's already calls to censor podcast distribution much more heavily. Can I get those transcripts to use for SEO? <laughs> um, but I can guarantee you, you know, we, we know for a fact, for example, that with uh, YouTube, if you mention the... Uh, the large communist nation with 1.4 billion people on the other side of the world, uh, YouTube will not uh, put your your video higher up in its recommended algorithms. You don't even have to have the word anywhere in the description. Mm -hmm. You just have to say the word of that country. Yeah. Uh, and we know that they will delist, they won't, they'll, they'll essentially um, shadow ban you would be the way to think about it, right? It's just harder to find your stuff. Uh, and again, I, I think that this is a perfect example of just follow the incentives, right? If you're a, an American corporation that has, uh, a, a, that is trying to, especially media corporation that needs a lot of eyeballs on something in order to make money, you're not going to purposely cut yourself off from a 1.4 billion person market if you don't have to, right? right? And if that means like, essentially becoming useful idiots for the gatekeepers of that 1.4 billion person market, you'll do it. You you don't care. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters for you is mammon. So uh, I I think that with the path that we've seen develop in the last couple of years is totally predictable just from following the incentives. Right. Uh, Man. I mean, I think this, this setting the scene kind of takes us into the primary thing I wanted to focus on today, where as far as useful idiots are concerned, they're being mass produced as always in America's high school. And I don't, I don't mean this as a term of derision against young people, obviously, but they're being mass produced in America's high schools and colleges uh, now more than ever. And this has been accelerated as the, the intensity, this polarization and division, like you're discussing in Stevenson's book intensifies I, I've talked to people who are in school, like what's happening, what's changing. I just know that the socialization piece is gone, right? It's all the same stuff being delivered, I would say, more efficiently, no peer-to-peer interaction. So kids are getting the same kind of content, both high school and college, while many of them are slowly you know, 
suffering worse and worse mental health as a result of this. I know some yeah. places uh, they're trying to put kids back into school. But yeah, I mean, as far as updating that <laughs> that advice is like looking out and trying to have a, a career or or trying to figure out what the next move is for an ambitious young man or woman. We talked a lot in, in the conversation that we had about this, about like personal branding, finding mentors. I would guess that a lot of that is still really relevant advice. But as we've kind of set the scene here, what are your updates to like how young people should be, you know, contemplating their next moves at this point in this world? Yeah, um, that's that's a, a really great question. And there's there is silver lining to what's kind of been happening. And that is the normalization of being able to work remotely. And again, all things all things are sit on a scale of you know vices at two ends and a virtue in the middle. Um, so too much remote work, I think, is very bad for people. Like, yeah, I personally am. If I never, I am talking to you on Zoom, uh, but personally, like, if I never have to see a, see a Zoom screen again in my life after 2021, it'll be too soon. Love it. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, you know, like for me personally, something that really helped me when I was at the end of my high school career, beginning of my college career, was the ability to like intern with companies and organizations remotely which back then was much less accepted because it was like, well, why would we do it remotely? And why would we do it with like a, an 18 year old, a 19 year old. Right. Uh, but nowadays it's, it's actually much more accepted. Uh, and a lot of companies are starting their very, very early uh, employees, interns, whatever you want to call them uh, in remote positions, which I think is a big advantage if you're a, um, a sharp, competent young person. I know you want to balance it out with like actually having real human interaction, like you're alluding to. Mm -hmm. It's important for people just to find a way to do that. And that's that's really, really hard. And I think that kind of goes back to my 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 belief, my kind of tongue-in-cheek belief that yeah, the population of Texas and Florida will be like 250 million by the by 2025, right? Uh, because personally, like I want to move to Florida because I just want to be around human beings. And that's so much harder to do just culturally when you're in a place that is in one version of the narrative where if you step outside, you're going to like kill your grandmother. Right. Yeah. I, I have family down in Florida and they've told me uh, they've essentially been open since August. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, which, which is just absolutely astonishing to me, um, which I love. Wonderful. Good for them. Let people make those risk decisions themselves. Right. If you don't like it, leave Florida. Yep. So. <laughs> right. They need the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how far inland you want to live, but they could use the room. Yeah. So uh, the one thing I would say to like somebody who's in the position where they have a lot of different options in front of them as far as their early career goes is don't despair. This is actually a really good place for you to be in. Take advantage of the fact that a lot of teams are working remotely. The barrier for you to be able to get an internship or a, an entry-level job that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to get without moving to the Bay Area and having a network there has just the, – the barrier just completely collapsed. It's, it's essentially at the floor. Uh, that, that's that's a huge advantage for a lot of people. Yeah, that's actually I've talked to a couple of Praxis graduates. One specifically, oh, he's real young and his name escapes me right now. Um, dang, I'm going to insert it into the monologue of the show because now I feel bad. But uh, he did a he did a conversation with uh, Nick Runlet and mm -hmm. me maybe uh, over the uh, last August, and he talked about like the trials and tribulations of having to go and live in the Bay Area. For oh, this yeah, opportunity that he wanted. And I was like, how did you do that? That sounds absolutely insane. It sounds dangerous. Like what he had to come up with as far as cost to do it, yep. to live in the Bay Area, which is beautiful, but 
has lots of problems. And yeah, you're right that that's a that's a barrier that's kind of been eliminated for a lot of people. Yeah, the barrier is essentially gone. Um, a lot of companies have moved to full remote. A ton of companies have moved out of the Bay Area. They've either moved to uh, Denver, Austin, or Miami, uh, all of which are notably cheaper than the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, still not the cheapest cities in the country. But again, that goes back to my split narrative of of how I think the country is going to go. Like, if you're a business moving from San Francisco. You know, a couple months ago, there's this kind of narrative that like cities like Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Boston would benefit so much from this. It's like, no. <laughs> Wait, why was Boston on a list with Cleveland and Pittsburgh just from like growing up near there? It, because it's cold and it's not New York or San Francisco for startups, right? Like it, that it's not not a tier one startup city with the exception of maybe biotech. Okay. Right. Sure. Um, like Boston does much better than than Pittsburgh and Cleveland as far as startups go, but it's still not a tier one city. Like the tier one cities would be uh, New York and San Francisco, right? All right, so they're um, not grouped together by cost of living, because no, 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 is, no. But it, but it's it's yeah. cheaper than San Francisco. So it says that on the signs when you go into Boston. <laughs> Welcome to Boston, cheaper than San Francisco. But there was kind of this narrative a couple months ago that these cities would kind of benefit, and I thought that was hilarious because if you're a business owner in San Francisco uh, or an investor and you can move your company anywhere, why would you choose like the coldest, cloudiest cities in the country? Mm-hmm. Like you, that also happened to be in like moderately business unfriendly political regimes you won't <laughs> you'll move to texas or you'll move to colorado or you'll move to florida right like, more no generally brainer. there might be there's something interesting there right because obviously you and i are very pro pittsburgh or at least up to this situation we love pittsburgh and um i thought it was an absolutely amazing place to live when i lived there and yeah i've had lots of questions about what does this mean for a city that has this like you know it's really affordable to live in Pittsburgh compared to other places that I've lived. You know where else it's affordable to live, Brett? It's affordable to live in Naples, Florida. It's affordable to live in in Fort Myers, Florida. It's affordable to live in Tampa. Mm -hmm. It's affordable to live in some of the the suburbs of Austin, Texas. Yeah. And it's hard to like picture Pittsburgh, like where Pittsburgh and um, Cleveland peeling people off of, you know, like Chicago, maybe. Uh, I'm just trying to think of like high cost of living places that are even anywhere near there. I think what it is, is the only the only kind of um, net immigration that you'll get in cities like that. I don't think you will get net immigration. I think you're going to see net immigration for a long time. Is going to be people who have like families in those areas. Right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, what would be the reason? Like, the, the a proximity issue that would say, okay, well, Pittsburgh is close enough to the places. I, I mean, that was why I picked Pittsburgh. Actually, I said, I need if I have to go back to New Hampshire, which is ten hours away from Pittsburgh, I need a travel situation that I can completely control, right. like without needing a train or a plane. Cities like that are good um, when you don't have the uh, the economic consequences of the last year imposed exactly. on them, right? Totally. The economic right. consequences of the last year, like. If I were a mayor or a city council person in any of these cities, I would be uh, I'd be campaigning to reopen everything right now mm-hmm. because it's completely destroyed these cities. And I think these cities are counting on a federal go- a government bailout because their revenue has just been completely destroyed and they can't you know print money. Right. Right. So all that being said, if you're a young person who's kind of at the place where you can either go back to school or maybe you can do an internship or something, I'd encourage you to think very seriously about the internship because although the opportunity cost of going to school has kind of come down because you could also work remotely while going to school full-time remotely, mm-hmm. that's hard. Yeah. Uh, like I don't want to paint – I don't want to be dogmatic about this and be like, oh, there's no advantages to the, the school side of things. School's still very expensive. <laughs> I'm still in the camp that – 
it's not the best choice for the vast majority of, of competent people. Quick question right there. Have you seen like boot camps or Praxis or programs like Praxis kind of like stepping up and saying, hey, like, you know, yeah, we put you in front of a computer at home, but now this place charging you $25,000 a year puts you in front of a computer at home. So like yeah, stepping I, up ad campaigns in trying to take advantage of this current situation. I haven't seen a lot on the marketing side. I mean, I've seen the companies like Lambda School have done very well with the, the current environment. And the advantage of something like a, a Lambda School approach is that it's an income share agreement. So you don't pay anything until you get a job. And then what you pay is a function of your pay at your job. So the more you get paid, the more you end up paying. That's great. The incentives are aligned very, very well. Um, that's, that's a much smarter model than any kind of tuition model. Right. Uh, when you're starting to talk about something that's like five, six figures. So I've seen some of those things, you know, um, we at, at the venture capital firm that I uh, do investments with started doing $50,000 investments in what we call the invisible college. So it's, and we've explicitly taken that branding where we've said like, look, if you're a smart, competent young person who's interested in taking four to six months to build out a company that you think you can raise venture capital funding for. And at the end of those four to six months, we will invest $50,000 to let you do that. I think we've done six, should be seven to eight of those investments by the end of this month, mostly research and development, deep tech kind of stuff, because it's it's hard to, it's hard to really get a sense of that something's a good idea or not when it's at the idea stage. Mm -hmm. Hollywood has completely destroyed people's perceptions of how uh, startup investing works. Nobody invests in a company based on an idea unless the founder has like successfully taken a company public previously. Right. Um, but you know, you can make an investment on say research that, that has been done. So we've, we've done some investments, people who previously were students, they've done some pretty serious research on a topic and they're ready to see if that research bears out in the real world. Mm -hmm. Right. We've taken that very specific branding. Like why would you go to zoom college? You know, why would you pay 50 grand for a semester we, we will invest 50 grand and you can work on this idea. You can build it out. And if it doesn't work, great. You know, to us as a firm, um, $50,000 isn't that much. And if it does work out, wonderful. Now you've spent your last four to six months better, right? Yeah. So there's a lot more opportunities like that that have popped up in the last year. So I, I encourage young people who are in particular who are listening to very seriously think about those things. People are also way more receptive to the, the tactics that I've talked about previously on outreach, mentorship, advice than they previously were. People were fairly receptive, especially if you played up the angle that you're a young person. People like helping young people. Mm -hmm. But because everyone is doing things remotely now, people are much more responsive to like an outreach that says, hey, I follow the work you do. I love what you're doing. You know, can I get five, 10 minutes of your time? Yeah. Right. And even if the answer is no, you're more likely to get a response of some kind, which is good to get. Okay. Well, you've talked in the past, like in previous shows and elsewhere, um, about being able to grow your connections to people who are a few steps ahead of you, right? Like yeah. build yeah. to expand that. Now, I know you don't like the word networking, so you can change it to whatever you want. But one of the big payoffs of traditional higher education was an opportunity to face-to-face -face, uh, expand your network at kind of a crucial time in your life to create opportunities. Well, now with Zoom College, that is not the same game that it was. So right. as far as like building a network is concerned, how do we update that? 
there are a lot of good communities that have flourished really well in the past year online. Um, so I would encourage people to search those out, your own weird little interests. Mm-hmm. They tend to be very niche, uh, especially if you are more of like the Gen Z uh, listener or Gen Z archetype. A lot of these people seem to have done a better job at coping with connecting with other people online. Good example of this is Discord groups, right? They, those have really, really grown in the last year. Another good example is Clubhouse, uh, which is in, I think, a invite-only beta right now, but a lot of people are on it at this point. It's a good way for people to meet other people verbally, which I think is important for human connection. Yeah, It's important that we actually like hear each other's voices. Obviously, it's important that we actually see each other, and it's also important that people like touch each other. Mm. But at the very least, I think it's really important that people hear each other's voices. And Clubhouse seems to have done it fairly well at that. Uh, the other thing I would encourage people is just small open acts of rebellion, like meet your friends in person somewhere, <laughs> mm-hmm. like go to Miami beach, you know, get a $80 a night hotel room, which you can do right now, which that's itself is astonishing and meet up, right? Actually try to meet the people you currently know in person and get everybody in the group to invite somebody else that they know and trust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Little things like that are probably the best way. Uh, outside of that, you know, my my advice would be take the medium to long term move to move somewhere that is going to be in one of these two realities that you actually want to live in. Exactly. Florida was just so liberating and invigorating at the at the same time for that very reason. Just being there with friends, talking to strangers. Uh, I was in New York, and uh, you and I talked Sorry a little bit that. about that. Yeah, in John Taylor Gatto's house and found the addition of Dumbing Us Down with your forward yeah. sitting on his desk, which was something that I was excited to share with yeah, that you. Was, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I sent you a picture on Instagram. But yeah, see, just seeing one guy um, in the city walking down the street without a mask on, on one yep. of the, you know, on the Upper West Side, smiling. I almost like he was such a curiosity that I had to talk to him. You yep. know, actually, I think he started talking to me, but I wanted to talk back like, Dude, what's your story? <laughs> you know, like in in a sea of just head down, mask on. You know, I mean, New York was impersonal enough before that, uh, but then to just go to Florida and be in that complete, like, yeah, Florida is looking pretty attractive for somebody who could go and live anywhere. Like, as far as making a longer term plan, Florida or somewhere down south is, but but not Texas at this point is looking pretty good. I don't fault anybody who has decided this, that this year would make them move somewhere else. Let me ask you a, a more specific question about um, online networks or online connections. And okay. um, are you part of any like Discord communities? No, personally, because I just hate the Discord app. <laughs> okay, um, but I've been I've been in and out of Discord groups before, and uh, through my work as a principal with fifteen seventeen, I I bump into them somewhat regularly. Yeah. So uh, a lot of the people we talk to are active on them and it, it's a good place to be. I personally am in kind of in the camp where I, I'm kind of a neo-Luddite. Like I, if I could live without any sort of notifications, I would. Unfortunately, I can't. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, this is, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I could actually express some gratitude to big tech and the world that they've created Back in the old days, in a situation like this, people like me would have to be rounded up and actually put into physical gulags. Yeah. You know, <laughs> today I can just be digitally depersoned and then I can throw my phone in a dumpster and, uh, you know, have some opportunity at a different kind of life. 
So I get that. Right. I've never considered myself a Luddite, but the situation might be coming where I have to embrace it and it's looking more and more okay with me. Uh, in general, you know, the, the one of the reasons I'm not a fan of anything that's like an alt social media approach, whether it's a, an ideologically alt social media approach, or I sometimes get pitched on ideas that are like, we're going to make social media less, less negative and less toxic. There's lots of reasons I'm not fans of, a fan of these things. But one reason is the, these big players have hundreds, if not thousands, of very well-paid uh, people whose only job is to figure out what color the notification button should be. Mm-hmm. They are paid specifically to make you addicted to what they're working on. They're paid a lot of money to do that. You're probably not going to beat them. <laughs> yeah. Like the reality is you're just probably not going to beat them. So the the best way of fighting something like that is just probably opting out in some way. I mean, let, let's back up to the earlier question of how does one um, make plan Bs, right? Yeah, sure. One good example is the last decade techno- technologically has been a decade of bundling. Yep. Maybe maybe not necessarily the last decade, but the decade prior to that more so was a decade of bundling services together, right? And you'll hear people in tech talk a lot about unbundling things, but unbundling tends to mean like you take the bad parts out and you just keep the good part and you only charge for the good part, right? That's what people so, want it to mean. Yeah, that's yeah. what people want it to mean. And that's what... Uh, you know, people will talk about unbundling education and they, what they tend to mean is like, we'll take out credentialing or we'll take out some stupid thing that you don't core really curriculum. need. Yeah. We'll take out the core curriculum and we'll only focus on skills. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think unbundling can also be a strategic kind of move for a company. And so if you're a business owner listening to this, right. Uh, think very seriously about where are the choke points that for you to operate your business, not just like if your business primarily drives, it's, revenue through Facebook and Facebook ads, what happens if Facebook bans your ability to run ads, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So you have to have some kind of backup. Similarly, uh, you want to unbundle each of these things in your business that you typically have in one place for convenience. And it might be a little bit less convenient, but you're going to be less dependent on one thing, right? So from a strategic perspective, you might want to say, okay, I have, right now I have, I have community management, advertising, and revenue all under one column. But now I want to have those in three different companies, right? Because one of those companies might kick me off for whatever reason. Again, justly or not, like that's the thing I really want to emphasize here. You don't have to actually be engaging any of this useful idiocy for people to kick you off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have friends who are like, you know, pretty sane people who've been kicked off of Facebook recently. And my, 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 my hunch is what has happened is these technology companies have told their like mid-level moderators to be very liberal in in the colloquial sense of the word uh, with bans, and we will unban people as we see it necessary. But it's better to it's better to ban someone now and ask for an apology later than to wait to ban them. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So you could be caught in this crossfire even if you're totally innocent. So. You'd want to unbundle each of these things from your business. So a good example of community management for, uh, might be uh, you might use a tool like Circle, which is a private uh, forum no-code tool that would allow you to run a private forum separate from Facebook, right? Most yeah. people like Facebook because of Facebook groups. It's essentially it's a, a private forum capability. You might want to pull everyone off of Facebook, start a Circle community that's integrated, say, with some sort of email tool and those things are separate. And yes, it's a little bit more of a pain in the butt, 
but you have a little, you have a lot more flexibility and you have, uh, you're in a much more robust situation in case something happens. Yeah. And you're making a product, right? You're making a knowledge product or a service instead of, you know, being one for somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. It's one of the things that I actually really like about Discord and I'm, I'm sure there's alternatives that I'll look at as well, but just being able to let people create their own groups, right? Like neighborhoods, like you're interested for in, in my case, you know, you're primarily interested in the alternative education conversation or you're primarily interested in the critical thinking conversation. It, it's all just a crowd in a, in a Facebook group. So, um, yeah, I mean, I really like the ability to personalize and figure out like what a number is like close to a tipping point for a community like that to operate at. I've watched various activism and political projects, uh, prioritize quantity over quality. And, you know, if I find out that the workable size of a group is 200 people, great. Now I know, you know, yep. uh, but I, I stopped adding like there's a queue of hundreds of people waiting to get into that Facebook group. And I don't like I don't have time to vet people. I let people into the group. Right. Somebody call somebody tries to win an argument by calling somebody else a white nationalist. I have to private <laughs> message them and say, hey, can you be careful about the language that you throw around in this group? Considering I me, mean, like that just happened to Dave Smith. Dave Smith got his whole Facebook group disappeared for something like that, or or limited in some way. Yeah. So it's like a, a, a tremendous liability if you just have your doors open um, to you know whoever wants to join. Yeah, and unfortunately, the the real thing at the end of the day is going to be you're going to need. And this is this is also why I'm not particularly optimistic about a lot of these these alt social approaches. Like, I think the best approach for you as a person is just if, if, to the extent that you can, well, definitely don't be a useful idiot. Like, seriously think about the, like, what is to be gained by get, engaging in X or Y, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, to the extent that you, you, you can keep your head down. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has this uh, speech that uh, I think it was a speech when he accepted the Nobel Prize called Live Not By Lies, right? And he lays out a couple important points about how one survives um, a soft authoritarian regime, right? Uh, or just an authoritarian regime, but some of the, you know, some of the Eastern Bloc regimes were much more soft authoritarian than they were hard authoritarian. Um, and he, one of the points is the title of the piece, Live Not By Lies. Don't actively lie or betray your values or your friends or your family, things like that, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, don't stick your neck out needlessly. <laughs> like, especially if you have other people depending on you, you're not a you're not a hero or a martyr in that case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, and it, that's a, that's actually a balance I'm trying to find. Where obviously I have a brand to promote, and we 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 kind of are what we are at this point. Like, I'm definitely working on curating. Uh, what's what our public face is much better targeting it more towards like the alternative education message, seeing like, where's the political stuff at this point that we can kind of trim out of this, at least as far I mean, it could be embedded into the shows. And yeah, I understand that now, you know, Google and Apple are crawling through, you know, MP3 files too. But to, to have a public face that is a little more, to, as far as they're concerned, innocuous, right, which I, I certainly think is possible. But yeah, I mean, that, that is a difficult question. It's a difficult balancing act where there's some expectation that people like us are going to comment on things as they happen. But what is the necessity of doing that? There's almost always nothing to be gained by commenting on it. Like yeah. that has been, uh, so 
not being a useful idiot and trying not to calumniate people needlessly have kind of been my two rules for engaging with things on social media. I've had many instances over the last year where I draft a tweet, usually given the nature of Twitter or something that's it's kind of like yeah. snarky. And I look at it and I think to myself, what's to be gained by this? And I just delete it. No, nothing's to be gained. I do that two or three times a week. Yeah, no, I, I think that those are those are good rules to apply. Nothing, nothing really is to be gained, but the way that the tool is set up, you think something's to be gained because you're going to get that dopamine from people retweeting it or, or liking it or engaging with it in some way. And you just have to remind yourself that uh, you that that's a drug and that you can't engage with the drug in that case. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the real payoff... Um... I have this friend, Nathan Frazier. Uh, you may or may not have heard of him. He's a copywriter. He's really, really good at Facebook shitposting. He has a course on how to do it to base. I mean, and this was the course was created in a in a different like social media and political landscape uh, where, you know, the block was far less hot than it is now as far as like, you know, getting banned or disappeared for certain things that you would say. Uh, that's escalated a lot in the last 12 months. But, you know, one of the things that he talked about when we had a conversation in my last show actually was you don't. Don't talk to your audience. Talk to your audience's audience. That's when you go viral with something. That's what people want. They want to read something and they go, that's what I've been trying to say. To right. So then they, they, read, they retweet it and they share it, right? Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. But then it, though, it speaks to kind of like the meme thing, getting ideas to go viral. Actually, Isaac uh, was on my show uh, five months ago and we talked about, like I said, our memes bad, our memes newspeak. And he and everybody else I asked about it said, no, it's really, really good for penetrating ideas. I still don't know if I agree, but um, if people are kind of backing off doing that and just creating these disruptions and this narrative current that's getting stronger and stronger and stronger based on what corporations and government and social media want, there is a balance to find there, right? If you're a person of influence and somewhat of an independent thinker. Right. The, the trick comes, I think there's going to be an increasing use for things like sarcasm, mm. kind of the Straussian approach of saying things between the lines, right? Yeah. But you have, to, you have to be really careful about this, though, too, because then people accuse you of dog whistling, right? They're not the same thing. Dog whistling and, and like Straussian language are not at all the same thing, but uh, midwits tend to think that they are. You have to know, you have to speak to something that you're, that, that the right person will understand what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. And sarcasm is a good example of that. Um, I tend to think that's a little too cynical. Uh, and I think that's something that's going to break the algorithms. It already does. It already does break the algorithms. There are examples of people uh, testing this on YouTube, back to the YouTube example about the, the big communist country that harvests people's organs in the East. Uh, that I'm not going to mention because I'm afraid of this getting <laughs> mm-hmm. delisted. People will say in their videos something sarcastic or even something positive, but without using positive words about that that country, mm-hmm. and it'll end up getting shadow banned. Right. Right. The algorithms are not good at reading sarcasm. They're not good at reading tone. They're not good at reading any of these kinds of things. So I think there's going to be an increasing role for heuristics for tone. And I think memes are a good example of that. They're, they're a good example of setting a tone over something like the Chad versus Virgin memes are, are great examples, right? Like you can say, you can put something in those memes that is actually like explicitly bad, say on the Chad side, but because of the, the tone of the meme, it's funny and it actually gets across the point that it's bad. Mm. Despite the fact that it's in what's essentially the good column of the meme. It's really funny that you, you mentioned like, getting clever with tone. Uh, About 10 years ago, I realized that YouTube has this software 
that runs. And if you had like copyrighted music in your video, it flags mm-hmm. it and like strikes your account and yep. won't let you show the video. If you take whatever the music is and you put it into an audio editor and you change the pitch <laughs> up or down a semi- half a semitone, and then you change the tempo like half of a percent and you export it as a new MP3 file, the software doesn't catch it. So yeah. I'm not recommending people do that. I'm just saying it's an interesting connection to your choice of the word tone, where you always have to be like trying to adapt your message to a, a, a changing environment and changing restrictions and new gates going up. Yeah. And, and I think there will come a time probably sooner than we expect where the algorithms will be able to read tone. Um, you just need to run enough examples of people speaking sarcastically through like GPT-3 and it'll be able to t- properly identify this is a sarcastic comment. Um, mm-hmm. So then we'll have to figure out another way of speaking, right? So that's, that's just how human ingenuity works. But again, at the end of the day, my my personal approach is, look, especially if you have other people dependent on you, like why would you push those buttons in the first place? Get your small circle of people you trust that you that you personally engage with. And those are the people over whom you can have some kind of influence. And that's maybe where you fight that battle. But unless you're somebody who's actually a large public figure, it doesn't make sense for you to fight that battle. Right. It just from, from an incentive perspective. And I don't think it's at all um, living by lies. It's not like you are going in and you're you're actively promoting something that you hate. Exactly. It's just saying sure. like it's just saying this is not my circus, it's not my monkeys. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think for the vast majority of people that's going to be the best approach. And then use that robustness that you have developed for yourself just by your self-control to uh you know build up your little sphere of influence, you know, the uh the sci-fi author uh, Travis Corcoran, who's a, a really fun follow on Twitter. His his Twitter handle is Morlock P. Uh, his handle is usually something like "Dogs don't have thumbs," um, but he's uh, he's the saying that he keeps coming back to. And he's one of these, you know, kind of like and cap, but like kind of probably like culturally right of center people. Mm-hmm. Tend your garden, plan next year's garden, do what you need to do to make sure that you can plant your seeds for the garden, and then tend your garden. And my advice is just make sure that you don't end up in a position where you don't have a garden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think there's there's a kind of psychological, emotional piece to that, too, where a young person – I mean, this happened to me last year. Like, I – as I kind of did my re- yearly review and looked at not just, like, productivity or growth, but also, like, attitude and orientation towards everything that was happening, I spent a lot of the year in a considerable period of retraction. Right. As far as envisioning. Um, and there, there were lots of variables that contributed to me doing that. But, you know, I have the wisdom of a person who's lived for 40 years. You know, so what is that like to be 17 or 18 years old? You know, now this definitely seems like I don't know. I mean, do they even care? Uh, what are they being told about it in school? I know that, you know, public school is politicized down to the messaging in elementary grades at this point. So, and I would imagine that there's a lot of doom and gloom, obviously the environment without anybody having to say anything. You know, I always said school delivers on its promise to make good citizens. And, you know, what is 
uh, wear a mask, stand this distance apart, don't look at each other for too long, whatever all the rules of school are for the kids who are in school and not just sitting in front of their computers more bored than they've ever been before uh, and more dis- and more disengaged than they've ever right. Uh, right. In, in learning than they've ever been before. What does the citizen output of this look like? But more importantly, and I, I talk to my niece about this a lot. Uh, she's like in middle school, approaching high school. Um, how are you feeling about this? How is this affecting? Like, I really want to understand. And she knows what I do. And I'm like, look, I'm not going to use you for content, even though she did agree to come on the show and do an interview. And I will do that at some point. But it's like, I'm not I'm not prying. This is not like a laboratory I'm trying to put you into. I'm curious about how, because I couldn't imagine this. I couldn't imagine having to do this. But just like the the outlook and the poisoning of the outlook that I think that a lot of these kids are getting, it makes me really sad. You know, there's there's this concept that Gatto also talks about that I, I love, and I wish more people talked about it, which is that school in particular, but I think social media is, social media in a certain sense is like its own, like school writ large, right? It's like oh, the, no, this, that's exactly what I've been saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah, it, all the toxicity of school all in one place, just global and constantly at your fingertips and driven directly into your eyeballs. But there's this this element to school, and I think to the extent in social media, it's the timeline of presentism, right? That we are in the present. The present is the only thing that has ever existed, and the present is the only thing that ever will exist. Mm-hmm. And Gatto talks about this to the extent that we lock children in schools uh, where they're separate from adults. So adults never adults never have to think about the future. Children never have to think about the future or the past either because they're with everyone who's in their own age group. And then a great example of this past year is, too, is we lock the elderly away. So we don't have to think about the past. We don't have to think about the past, and we don't have to think about the future. Now is the only thing that has ever existed. Now is the only thing that ever will exist, right? Mm -hmm. And that's so, so scary uh, when you get into these, like, historical moments, right? There's a tweet going around. There's something like, somewhere right now, there is an English literature professor drafting a tweet, and this was during the, the capital stuff that was going on, drafting a tweet that, this is the t- most unprecedented thing that has ever happened in American history. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, if we have any grasp of history, we know that that's not true. But the way that the timeline works, the way that our structure of a society works, especially right now, where we end up locking people, like literally locking people away from their elders and from children or children from other children in particular, we, we don't, we don't think about the future in the past. And I, and I think you know, part of this is cultural and I, I, I don't know how you really fix it. I'm reading a an excellent book as of right now by Helen Andrews. She's one of the editors over at the American Conservative called Boomers. She she breaks down a couple of different famous baby boomers and kind of says whether or not how they are kind of examples of the the mantra of their generation, right? So she breaks down like Steve Jobs, Jeffrey Sachs, Al Sharpton, Aaron Sorkin, and Camille Paglia. Uh, and she makes this point at the beginning of the book that the beginning of the baby boomers is this the, the boomers themselves kind of have this presentism about them that nothing reality never really existed before 1950 mm-hmm. history started in 1950 right mm-hmm. and if you look at the statistics of who the senior staff members are at uh, any sort of education institution in the united states i i just saw this chart yesterday i wish i had saved it something like 90 percent of them are baby boomers mm-hmm. right sure um and i i her final example of boomers are also the millennials. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't know how you, you break outside of presentism. Presentism allows us to say, like, you know, something must be done, right? When in reality, maybe the best answer isn't to do something. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, breaking out of something a step before that is becoming aware of it. So how about that? Teaching people history. like You're totally actually. right, though, because the, what we're seeing, it's on the one hand erasing history, and on the other hand, it's erasing hope, right? By taking away the past and taking away the future, those are the things that it most erases for these young people. It kind of, it speaks to the demoralization piece that we talked about earlier through, you know, KGB subversion campaigns or run by whoever, uh, updated to modern times. Uh, it also reminds me of something that um, Jonathan Cazole said about school. So, John, you know who Jonathan Cazole, super far left uh, education critic. I learned about him before I knew who Gatto was. He was he worked in Boston. And, um, you know, he said one of the the best subliminal messages of public schooling is that kids go in there and they're made to feel as if every single thing has already been figured out and society is functioning exactly as it needs to function. Right. So there is no concern about what happens next or second or third order thinking. And there is no concern about how do we get here? It's like this is how things function. You jump on to this assembly line or this conveyor belt at this point. If you behave, if you're good, you can stay. You can, you are welcome to be part of this thing that already functions perfectly. And it shows up in uh, the way history is, double finger quotes, taught in school. This has all been finalized, right? The debate, and this is true in science too, like debate from these subjects has been entirely removed. How could we have created a textbook if we hadn't figured everything out, right? right. So it's like you, ignorant young person, we have settled everything. Welcome to the conveyor belt as long as you behave while you're on it. Right. Yeah. And going back to the plan B stuff, like something I've started thinking more and more about is like hmm, the books that really, really matter to me, I probably want physical copies of them. Mm, yeah. Probably don't want them on Kindle. <laughs> Do you, my friend Rich, who people in my audience will know I'm talking about, 10 years ago, he said to me uh, when the Kindle came out, he goes, Oh, you get it? Kindle? like burning books. And I said, that's crazy. I said, what a crazy thing. And here we are. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's something I've I've started talking about more for my audience. And I think it's just a natural progression for my audience as I progress um, in in years is, uh, you know, I've been talking a lot to young people on this conversation so far professionally, but if you're someone who's a young professional or even not a young professional, just a professional, I've been encouraging more and more people to start doing some kind of consulting on the side outside of your day job. Mm. Just develop additional, I don't want to call them income streams because that just sounds kind of scammy, but develop additional ways for you to make money that you can rely on. Um, Great example is just in case you get fired. For whatever reason, you want to have a way to make money that doesn't require you to go and get another full-time job immediately. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So big thing, I, most people like book, if you're, if you're paid money by your current employer to do X, there's probably somebody else who would also pay you money to do X, maybe not as regularly as your current employer does. Mm -hmm. Right. That's consulting. People think of consulting as, you know, you come in and they think of it as management consulting. Uh, You come in, you give people advice on how to run their company. And that's only just one type of consulting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anybody, anybody who's paid for their knowledge is a consultant in my mind. Yeah. You know, whether we want to call it consulting or freelancing, I think most people are actually capable of doing this and they don't even think about it mm-hmm. because they, they, they think like, oh, I'm, I'm full-time employed or they think I don't have skills or they think who would I find as clients or how much would I charge? All of which are answerable questions with a little bit of work. Absolutely. Yeah. 
No, and there's there are there are lots of ways even for me to do it for sure. So, um, any burning desires on advice specifically for young people or young professionals that I didn't prompt with a question? I really wanted to discuss the consulting thing. I was glad we were able to at least mention that. Mm-hmm. The last year has also shown the importance of some sort of location independence to the work that you do mm-hmm. to the extent to the extent that you can. If your employer current, if you're full time employed and your current employer currently allows you to work remotely, um, confirm whether or not they're going to continue to allow that, uh, because I think it's going to be increasingly important to be able to get up and move. Yeah, and that that could include in, outside of the United States. Are you in a position where you could claim residency in another country if you needed to? Mm-hmm. Like this year has made very clear, there is value in having a second passport if you can have one. And like the, the the United States passport used to be the shining gem of the world. And, you know, I think now it's maybe ranked number 30, 40, or 50, depending on which index you look at. Right. I would say, think about your career in a way that if the next couple of years are going to be really volatile, you definitely want to think about at least being robust to take a term, to take a, a way of thinking about this from Nassim Taleb, right? You have fragile, robust, and anti-fragile. And the ideal place to be in a very uh, volatile world is anti-fragile, but that that's not obvious how one develops an anti-fragile kind of job or role or career, right? Well, if I could just add this, like so so much about you know being a person or being a system or being an organization is around resisting stress and resisting volatility. You know, well, that's being it's robust, like, though, right? Well, that, yeah, sure. But it's just like, who wants to be in volatility? Who wants to be in uncertainty? So, so much of, of life is about eliminating these things. And as a result, you have systems, people, organizations that are fragile, right? Right. So to what you're saying, I, I think that's a condition that most people are in, right? There, or most organizations are in, most systems are in right now. But you disagree? No, no. I think if you're an employee, you're in a very fragile position, exactly. period. Yeah. We, this year has made that very, very clear. If you're an employee who's on social media in particular, you're in a very fragile position. If you don't have some sort of reason to be on social media, don't be on social media. Like, I think that that, that might be one of the key takeaways of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I'm a fan of having the personal brand, but I don't think the personal brand needs to be connected to social media. Mm-hmm. That's a point I make very clear in my book is – only use social media if you have a clear way of it actually growing the top of the funnel for your personal brand. Otherwise, it's a total waste of time for a lot of people. Right. And it's a liability, which this year has made very clear. Right. So if you're one of those people who are listening, I think it's wor- it's worthwhile to do like a personal audit of how schooled for fragility you were and how susceptible to that you still are, right? So as you, maybe for the first time in your life, encounter a period of sustained and perhaps unprecedented volatility and uncertainty, your current state of fragility doesn't, well, Zach, where you're talking about location freedom, which I think is something that I really benefit from, but there's also a double-edged sword to that. If you're not trained to live in volatility, um, be very deliberate about the decisions that you make before you pack up all your shit and go somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Have, have a network of humans that yeah, you trust. Absolutely. To be around, right. Like I, at the same time, you know, if you, if you can't be location independent, make sure you are around people that you trust and you have plans, right. Mm-hmm. Like do the basic, basic kind of like bug out stuff. You know, there's a good website on this called the prepared that um, the former founder of Axios, John um, Stokes runs has a lot of good content that I'd encourage people to check out 
on like what's the stuff that you need to have at home in case you know the power grid goes down in case um you know the water supply goes bad any of these kinds of things mm-hmm. be in a position where you're at least robust professionally and i think a good example of robustness professionally would be maybe you're an employee but you have consulting clients on the side maybe you have one you know even if you only have one client that you work with say on evenings or after work or on weekends you can grow that to two and you can grow that to three and you can grow that to four and make sure that those are clients who are in industries that uh, will not be destroyed by volatility. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the advantages, for example, of the work I do is being in doing career coaching and consulting. Like if the economy gets bad, people want to get a job. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Like that's the reality of how it works. It's a fairly recession proof kind of uh, area to be working in. Um, even like, venture capital is kind of the same way that when the economy gets bad, the federal reserve just starts printing money and there's a lot more money out there. So that means there's that money needs to go into higher yield asset classes. Right. Mm -hmm. So think about things. What happens when volatility happens, right? Like what's the second and third order consequences of volatility. And if you're in the position where you're currently an employee at the very minimum have the six to 12 month emergency fund. And I would encourage you also have, maybe three months of some sort of um, non-US dollar emergency fund, mm-hmm. just in case. I don't think the US dollar is going anywhere personally, but that's a whole separate conversation. You want to have you want to have it personally just so you can access it, right. is what I'm yeah. saying. Then the next good best level is having some sort of side income that could at least cover your expenses. Then the next, next best case is having some sort of side income that uh, can supplant your main income. And then a robust position, I think, is being in a recession-resistant or volatility-resistant uh, place of either self-employment or quasi-self-employment, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then then we could have a whole conversation spitballing on what actually anti-fragility looks like. And yes. th- that's, that's, a, that's a much harder thing to put your finger on because if you could say like, oh, that's what it is, a lot of people, I think, would go and do it. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is an upcoming project on School Sucks that I'd love to have you back for. I'd love to have your voice in that uh, on Taleb's work. I think a lot of it will be around anti-fragility, but I'm currently going through a couple of his other books as well. And um, he has this, this term, it's escaping me right now, when you don't have an, any options, but you have to do something. Like this is like a really bad position to be in. That's what we're saying. Create in all these different areas, whether it's money coming in, money already sitting there, places to go, uh, resources. It's like have options, like always be thinking about options. So you're not pushed to a place where you get to a decision point and you have to act at a cost right? Yep. At a higher cost than you need to act. So there's a tremendous amount of, it had something to do with, he was talking about his experience as a, as a currency trader, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, and this is in anti-fragile. He's saying the people who uh, were, were the best at this, they didn't have a lot of like theoretical knowledge about it. They just knew when to buy and sell, yeah. right? They, because um, they had this foundation of having options. So they were never being pushed or forced to do anything by circumstance. So I think yeah. that's, that's really important, but you'll come back and do that. Sure. I yeah. would love that. Hey, act of rebellion. Um, I'm here in Butler County. Actually, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but we should do an act of rebellion in the short term while I am here. I'm only 45 minutes away. I don't know what we can yeah. do. I, yeah, I don't know. Pennsylvania has made everything illegal. Maybe we can figure out something. Maybe up in Butler County, something's legal. Down in Allegheny County, everything's still kind of illegal. Uh, don't tell anybody this, but Butler County is basically Florida. Or at least Butler oh, wow. is basically Florida. Good, good for them. Yeah. Good for them. So, 
That's another point. I mean, I, I just real quick, I want to say, I think that this year has made abundantly clear that if any sort of bad ism comes to the United States, it's probably going to come from like your local level. Mm-hmm. It's probably not going to come from the federal level. Although next week might change that. We're, we're talking about this before the, uh, the January 20th day. And I, I might have to eat my words after January 20th. We'll see. Well, I definitely appreciate you helping uh, at least a certain group of people get better prepared uh, mentally and hopefully actually uh, for what might be coming, even though we are unsure. Uh, yeah. Let's get together down in Allegheny County in the Jewel of the Rust Belt at some point soon in some way that we can. We can certainly record a show long before I'm going to release it. So I'll talk to you about that. You mentioned your audience a couple of times. Who Mm -hmm. is that? And if people want to learn more about your work or consume more of your work, how do they do that? Yeah, my audience generally falls into two or three categories. Uh, It tends to be young people who are just starting out in their careers uh, or think about starting out in their careers. It tends to be people who are looking to get promotions or change jobs, Mm -hmm. and it tends to be people who are looking to uh, start an income on the side, typically through some sort of freelancing or consulting or acquiring an incredibly small business. Mm -hmm. Uh, The main way that people can follow me is go to zackslayback.com, Z-A-K-S-L-A-Y-B-A-C-K. Uh, and sign up for the email list. I'm also on Twitter, but you know, I, I never know how how long that's actually going to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, if I if I actually like followed my own uh, language, I would literally only be on my email list. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'd encourage people to check out the email list. I blog there, and that's that's probably the best way to follow me. Excellent. Well, sorry I let so much time go by uh, between conversations. The last one was great. This one was great. I look forward to the next one and uh, be safe down there in Pittsburgh. Hopefully, I'll see you soon. Thanks, Brett. Excellent. Perfect timing. Cool. Hello there, and thank you for sticking through all the way to the end of the show. If you are getting value out of these presentations, consider returning value and then getting more value. What do I mean by that? There's a couple of ways this can work. First of all, you can support the School Sucks Project and our efforts through this Essential School Sucks collection and our future efforts, and you can lend your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash school sucks. In fact, you can look through the show notes and see numerous. Maybe you're looking for something less of a commitment, but you can see numerous ways to support us there. And finally, for some of you, one of the best ways to get value from the show, return value to me, and then get, at this point, an almost immeasurable amount of additional value in return would be to support our partner for this Essential School Sucks endeavor, and that partner is Praxis. Click the link in the show notes, or you can go to discoverpraxis.com slash school sucks podcast to get a copy of the free book that explains a lot of their secrets and practices. It's called Forward Tilt. It is by Praxis founder Isaac Morehouse and Praxis graduate Hannah Frankman. And I want to just make sure there's kind of a, a clear expectation of how the Praxis program works in the current moment. So months one through three are called a boot camp where participants learn how business works, They discover career paths that might be available to them and match their interests. They also get coaching on how to develop a personal brand. 
and build the confidence required for that kind of self-assertion, putting yourself out into the world like that as an individual. Months four through six are called placement. So here they create a professional portfolio that showcases their current skills and developing skills. They get access to the entire Praxis hiring network, which has probably expanded enormously since that conversation you just heard with Zach. They start working with a placement coach and developing a plan for good fit opportunities with businesses, and they start doing interviews at growing innovative companies. Months seven through 12 are the actual apprenticeship. That's five months of real-world experience. So they get an apprenticeship coach. They start a full-time paid apprenticeship applying the new skills and knowledge that they've learned in the Praxis program so far while gaining extremely valuable, again, real-world, not college, real-world experience and the ability to learn from entrepreneurs and established professionals. One more step. This one might be kind of startling to some of us who chose a different path. Month 12, graduation. Leave the program Keep your full-time job, gain lifetime access to the Praxis hiring network and mastermind community. Continue your career with confidence. That's how the program works. It's a year. So if you are the parent of a teen or you are the teen, please go to discoverpraxis.com slash school sucks podcast and start learning more.